Well, we are talking about the subject of prayer uh, this morning, and uh, it's good that we've been praying together as we have, because that uh, is uh, what we're speaking of in terms of this devoted series that's covering the four Sundays here in August. So in both our congregations here and at 502, we've already looked at uh, the way that the church in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, that's been the key verse, was devoted to the apostles' teaching. We've also uh, looked at the early church and the way that it was devoted to the breaking of bread. Carlos uh, uh, here in this congregation helped us so much with that uh, last week. I don't think we'll ever forget one or two of his illustrations that he's so good at uh, giving to us on that subject. And today we're going to look at being devoted to prayer. Uh, next Sunday, God willing, at least here at Alder Road, uh, Dan will be uh, speaking about being devoted to fellowship and uh, uh, that will also be the theme up in uh, 502 as well. In fact, I think Dan's preaching in both congregations next Sunday. Uh, so in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves, this is the early church, the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In saying the Lord's Prayer together uh, this morning, it could be that one or two of you think, why don't we do that regularly? Um, and I think the, the real answer would be that uh, we would recognize that though there is a, a place for saying the Lord's Prayer together at times, it's good to do that to remind ourselves, in fact, of, of what Jesus taught us, that probably the real reason that we don't do it Sunday by Sunday in a church like this is because we recognize that the so-called Lord's Prayer was set as a model in terms of helping us how we could pray. So it wasn't so much Jesus was saying, say this every time you pray, but rather this gives you an outline, a kind of model of the way that you should be praying. And so I want to pick up from the Lord's Prayer, in fact, uh, today as we think about being devoted to prayer, one of the phrases that Jesus used in that model prayer. So it's our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus says, Give us today our daily bread. And uh, we're going to talk uh, about asking in prayer today. That's not the only thing that we do in prayer. And in fact, that's made clear in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave us as uh, uh, adoration, as confession, uh, other elements to prayer. But Jesus does tell us to ask for things. He says, give us today our daily prayer. And in fact, the early church being devoted to prayer was a church that was very willing to ask God for things. So in, in Acts chapter 4, just a couple of chapters later from our key verse, in Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, uh, we read of the early church praying like this, Now, Lord, consider the threats of our enemies. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So that was some prayer meeting, uh, that as they asked God uh, to move and to work. So the very place in which they were praying was actually shaken. Now, I really want to underline the fact that it's important that as a church, we come to God and we ask Him for things. And one of the reasons I want to underline that is that sometimes you hear preachers say something like this, well, we need to be careful in praying because praying isn't just a matter of bringing in a shopping list. 
And I accept that, that prayer, of course, isn't just about asking God for things, but nevertheless, the New Testament makes it very clear that we are to ask for things, and there's constant encouragement to do that in the New Testament. So, for example, just after the Lord's Prayer, if you go on in, in Matthew chapter 7, I read the Lord's Prayer from uh, Matthew chapter 6, but if you go on into chapter 7 and verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Or again, a couple of verses later in verse 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We are meant to ask God uh, for things. And in James chapter 4 and verse uh, 21, the Bible actually rams it home with a negative. James says, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. And so we're encouraged to ask. Or you go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, and this is Paul. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Ask God for things. And then if you go to John's gospel, the scope of our asking becomes quite mind-blowing. So in John 14 and verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And in chapter 15 and verse 7, where it says, and Jesus is speaking, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I mean, that scope of what we can ask for there is just incredible. Now, in a way, that gives us a problem. Can we just ask anything at all? Well, we need to take the Bible as a whole and recognize that with our prayers, there are issues of character. There are issues of understanding the will of God. There is a matter of our motivation, and there's the matter of our perseverance in prayer. But I've said enough to make it clear that the New Testament encourages us to ask God. Jesus says, pray like this. Give us something. Give us today our daily bread. You know, if you've ever had small children, you get to uh, that point uh, when, particularly when they're really quite small, when they keep on pestering you and you say to them, look, if you keep on asking, you won't get. Well, let me tell you, the New Testament is the exact opposite to that. Because the New Testament tells us, if you keep on asking, you will get. Now, as a pastor teacher over many years, I've thought a lot about the subject of prayer. And uh, back in 2015, I'm going to give you a bit of a bit of personal testimony here. At the back end of 2015, suddenly I, I had a thought come to me, just kind of came run out of the blue, and I thought to myself, "There's never been a year in all my Christian life. I haven't been a Christian for decades. There's never been a year when I would have prayed every single day of the year." and not missed one single day. I'd never would have done that. And I've been very disciplined. I've been a Christian for years, been a pastor and teacher, and uh, I've had a disciplined uh, uh, devotional life, but uh, there would never have been a year when I would have prayed every single day of the year without missing. You know, the days when you travel and, you know, days you get totally disrupted. And I was kind of challenged. I thought, after all these years, I wonder if I could do that. Could I literally pray every single day of the year. 
Uh, and I was determined that I wouldn't make this a New Year resolution because I've been that way and you say, you know, at the beginning of the year I'll get up at uh, 5 o'clock and I'll pray at 5 o'clock in the morning for an hour every day of this coming year. And um, By uh, January the 3rd you're feeling a bit weary and it's gone out the window already. So I, I didn't want to go that way. I didn't want to feel guilty or legalistic if I missed a day. I was kind of clear in my mind about that. Neither did I want to feel that if I missed a day, that I kind of would lose the value of all the previous prayers and I'd have to kind of wind back to zero and start again. Uh, but very simply and very strongly, I just had this conviction I'd really like to do that, to find time to pray every single day. And then, for me, something rather extraordinary happened. And that is that the more I prayed the more I wanted to pray every day. And so I went through 2016, and I did. I prayed every single day. And I thought, well, should I stop? And so it went to 2017, and I prayed every single day. And then it came to 2018, and I prayed every single day. We're now in 2019, and I think I'm probably going for the Guinness Book of Records, you know. I've... <laughs> And I've just found it's got into me. It's really got into me. I want to find time to pray every single day. And I haven't missed a single day from the 1st of January 2016. But let me tell you, if you're going to do that, there are some days when you really have to fight for it. Really have to fight for it. And I'm going to tell you about one day that sticks in my mind uh, more than any other. It was actually back in 2017. It's just over two years ago. And Sue and I were on our way to Barcelona. And uh, we caught a ferry from Portsmouth, and we arrived in Bilbao in Spain, northern Spain, very early in the morning, had a very stressful disembarkation. And we had our car with us, and it was a long and tedious drive. I'd never driven this before, across northern Spain to Barcelona from early in the morning, and I suppose we got there sometime mid-afternoon. And I had decided to actually park the car in the airport at Barcelona so we could then get public transport into the centre of Barcelona where we were staying. As we drove into the car park at the airport in Barcelona, we were literally ambushed. And my wife had her handbag snatched. And there was a lot of things in it that were quite important, but for the purpose of this story, above all, our passports. And we lost all sorts of things, including our passports. It then became a big drama because the police had to get involved and uh, we eventually had to go down to a police station and we had to make statements in, that was, of course, in English then had to be translated into Spanish and Sue was given a, a picture, uh, a page of pictures and she had to try and identify who it was that had stolen the bag from her and so this went on for some considerable time. Eventually, having kind of got all through that process, we managed to get to a metro station and we went into the centre of Barcelona. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have been to Barcelona and you may be aware that in the centre there's a huge square. We'd never been there, but I, I had uh, uh, got a map with me and it was clear that where we were staying was in a road immediately off of this square in Barcelona. So I read the map and said, we need to go this way. And so we had our cases with us, and off we went. And of course, I'd read the map completely wrong. And we walked around four sides of the square in central Barcelona, dragging our cases behind us. Eventually got back almost to the metro station and realized that that was then the road that was going to where we were staying. 
so I turned left instead of right. And so eventually uh, we arrived where we're staying. Uh, as I arrive, I say to the girl on the uh, reception desk, I'm sorry we're so late, but we've actually had a bad time. We've, we've been um, ambushed and robbed uh, at the airport, and so we got very delayed. She said, okay, well, let me just book you in. She said, I will need your passports. That didn't go down very well at that particular moment. Uh, but we, we got over that and eventually got into this room where we were staying. Now, it's now quite late in the evening, and we haven't eaten for hours, and we're kind of shocked and a bit traumatized, and we're desperate to have something to eat. And so uh, we decide that we'll go out again and get something to eat. This is spring in warm, bars, uh, warm bar, balmy Barcelona. And so we go out, and it's blowing a gale, it is pouring with rain, it is freezing cold. And so we walk around the centre of Barcelona, eventually we find somewhere uh, to eat, we have something to eat, we come back in uh, to where we're staying. By this time, Sue is so traumatised, uh, she's got a double migraine, I think, so... I kind of put her in bed to die. She looks about there, you know. And, uh, uh, and then here I am after this terrible day. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm thinking, I think I need to pray. <laughs> so I go into the bathroom. I find a convenience seat. And uh, <laughs> I sit down and pray. Unforgettable day. A day when I really, really had to fight to have a time of prayer with God. A little bit of an interesting postscript to that story. The next day we had to go to the consulate in Barcelona in order to get uh, something done about our passports because we had to get back into the UK at some point. So we go to the consulate and they say, yes, uh, uh, we can provide you with emergency passports. Uh, they can only be used to get you back into the UK. They'll be taken off you as you go in and then they'll be, then be shredded. But they'll cost you £200. So there's nothing we could do, so we had to pay £200 and then we had to buy new passports altogether when we came back into uh, the UK. So we go back to where we're staying, having paid the £200, feeling a bit sore about everything as you can imagine. As we get in, my mobile phone goes and there's a phone call from somebody at Barclays Bank. Now, I need to say that uh, I have a current account at Barclays Bank. I don't have any savings. I don't have any investments. I only have a current account. There's nothing special between me and Barclays Bank. But this guy who's ringing from Barclays Bank says, I'm just ringing up to see if you are happy with your Barclays Bank account. And I said, well, it's not really the time to talk. We're in Barcelona, and we've just been robbed. And he said, I'm so sorry to hear that. He said, did you lose much? I said, well, we lost two passports. And I said, that's costing us £200. He said, I tell you what, because you've been a customer for some years, I'll put £200 into your bank account so you can enjoy your holiday. And five minutes later, there was £200 in our bank account. <laughs> and you're thinking, there is a God in heaven. Now, in the Bible, we read of great miracles. We read of things like turning of water into wine and feeding the 5,000. But let me tell you, a bank giving you money, that's up there. I tell you, it's up there. <laughs> now, two reasons I'm giving you this personal, rather personal story. The one reason is this, that back at the end of 2015, I found myself gripped about prayer in a new way, and God has done something in me about that. Uh, this autumn, as a church, our small groups, just for the autumn term, are going to be particularly, in the way that we organise them for the autumn term, they're going to be particularly uh, centering on the matter of prayer. 
So we want God to do something amongst us as a local church with regard to prayer. And the second thing is that it means from the 1st of, September, 1st of January 2016, there has not been a single day when I have not prayed for this church. And that was before I even got here, that that was happening. What do I pray for? What do I ask God for? I'm going to share five things with you, <clears throat> quite briefly, to help us to pray as a church for Gateway. I don't only pray these five things, nor do I pray the same five things every day, but in my daily prayers, these five things very often are kind of there in my prayers for this church. And as we think of making a particular emphasis and focus on prayer this autumn, I want to share this with you so that we can be a church that's helped to be devoted in prayer. Right, so the first thing is this. I pray for anointing. And that's particularly for the leaders. I pray that we might have leaders with anointing. Leaders in this church, elders, leaders here, they have shepherding responsibilities. That's how the Bible would describe it, which means that they are responsible to feed and care <coughs> for the flock of God, which is the local church. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the elders of the church in Ephesus, be shepherds of the flock. And elders are shepherds of the flock as they help to care for the flock by feeding the flock of God with truth. And that happens a great deal in a church like this through preaching and teaching. One of my favorite verses on preaching and teaching in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 3.10, where Paul says, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. And as the people of God, we can lack in faith because we don't know the truth or because we have forgotten the truth. And therefore, those who are shepherds of the flock, who are preaching and teaching, are seeking to fill up that gap so that where we lack in faith, we may receive the truth to build us up in our faith. I find it very interesting that the Apostle Paul, and you can check this out in your, your New Testaments, when the Apostle Paul asked people to pray for him, which he quite often did, he never ever asked for people to pray that he might see conversions. Now, I'm sure he wanted to see conversions, and I'm sure people did pray that he'd see conversions. But what he actually asked for prayer for is for the preaching of the Word of God. He, pray, he asked, please pray for me as I preach the Word of God. So I want to encourage us to do something that I certainly do on a very regular, probably daily basis, and that is to pray for the elders as they feed the flock of God for those that preach and teach the truth in this local church. Secondly, wisdom. And again, this is particularly with reference to the leaders of the church, that our leaders may have wisdom from God. Uh, James said, didn't he, in his epistle, that if any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And so I pray that our leaders might have wisdom from God. And I want to suggest that today life is so complex that that has never been more important I think of uh, leaders in churches these days, and obviously here 
the elders from time to time, having to deal with issues around sexual morality. I mean, that is such a minefield today. Issues of divorce and remarriage, increasingly gender issues, the whole matter of political correctness, how we handle that with regard to gender issues, the way that government legislation on these issues is constantly moving against us. And these things really are minefields, especially when we're trying to help individuals. And we as the congregation can all have opinions about these things, but elders need to operate in the heat of it and carry responsibility for the demands of it as they have to handle issues and counsel individual people. And so I pray that the leaders of this church may have wisdom. Now, I was an elder for 48 years in various churches, and uh, I became convinced that over the years, pastoral situations were becoming ever more complex. And so for elders to oversee this church properly, they need to serve the people of God here, but they have to exercise authority. And we're living in a day when authority is a dirty word. But elders can sometimes face situations that aren't actually answered by one single verse in the Bible that make everything in this particular issue immediately crystal clear. There are always biblical principles, and elders have to make their decisions according to those principles and to know that they are answerable to God for the decisions that they are making. And sometimes we can wonder about a particular decision. But very often we don't actually know all the details that are involved. And that's where we do have to trust eldership authority. But what we can do is to pray and ask for wisdom for those that lead this church. And I do that a lot. So in Hebrews chapter 13 we read, "'Have confidence in your leaders.'" And submit to their authority, because they watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that will be of no benefit for you. Happy elders leads to happy churches. Okay, let's pray for wisdom for those that lead this church. Thirdly, what I pray for is growth. I pray for growth. Now, there's a well-known statement uh, in this section in Acts chapter 2 from which we are taking our theme for these four weeks about being devoted where it goes on in this section to talk about the fact that the church in Jerusalem grew daily. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This was a fast-growing church. The Lord added to them daily. And we've got some numbers. So you go through the Acts of the Apostles here, and we read that on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 that were converted and they were added to the church. In Acts chapter 4, we read that 5,000 men only were added to the church in Jerusalem. That was beside the women who were being added as well. In Acts chapter 6, we read that the numbers were increasing. In Acts chapter 11, we read concerning the church in Antioch that a great number of people became believers, so much so that they had to increase the teaching staff. And that's where the Apostle Paul gets involved in Antioch. 
we even have a final number for the redeemed church, which is there in Revelation chapter 7, when it's 144,000, which may disappoint you a bit, but let me tell you, it's a metaphorical figure, right? It's speaking about the wholeness and the completion of the church. So to say we should have no concern about numbers, I would suggest to you, is biblically wrong. The early church was aware of numbers, and it counted. But let me tell you a concern I have where this, I think, gets very often twisted today. And it's a concern and an approach that I very much question. And that is where you get local churches setting targets for numbers. And so, in my experience, it's usually a 1,000. Um, so, a number of churches I've known that say, we've got a vision and a target for 1,000 church members. And to justify it, they say, look, the early church was concerned about numbers, so we've got a target for a 1,000. Let me tell you, that's not how it worked in the early church. They didn't set a target. They counted the numbers that were there. They counted those that the Lord had added to the church, and they rejoiced in that. They did not set a target for numerical growth. And I want to say I've seen that, and I've seen it in our churches over the years. I've never once seen the target figure reached. Now, maybe somebody could say to me, oh, I know where it happened, but I've never seen it personally. And I think, therefore, you can set yourself up for disappointment by setting targets for church growth. And when it's not fulfilled, even breeds some cynicism um, amongst people. I think it's not a biblical approach. What I do see as a biblical approach is this. Healthy churches should grow. I really believe that. And that's what I pray for. And so when there's a belief course running, what do I do? I pray. I pray, God, let there be salvations. Let people come to faith. Let people be added to the church out of this belief course. When there are baptisms, I pray, Lord, please give us more. We need more baptisms, Lord. Let more people be saved and added to this church. Let them be baptized and brought into the fellowship here. I pray constantly for a sovereign work of God, that God will break out and break through, and that we may see growth. That It's just spectacular. But I'm not setting targets, but I believe a healthy church should grow. And I'm praying that this church will grow, and I believe we need to do that. In seven years, sorry, in 50 years, I've been part of seven churches. I have never been in a church that didn't grow in 50 years. Now, I've seen probably in all the churches I've been in, the church go perhaps flat for a time, even sometimes for a few years. In the very big church I was up in Brighton, where uh, we were hundreds and hundreds in members, we had 800 members for about 15 years, I think it was. We were completely stuck there. So we were a very big church, hurrah, hallelujah, and all that, but we were stuck. And it took, it took us more than 15 years before we saw, started seeing growth again, even in a very big church like that. And sometimes churches are pruned. They are cut back and they fall back a bit because God is pruning in order that the church may develop and grow. But the media view of the church is that we're all in decline and death and it's all fading away in this country. Meanwhile, we've got New Frontiers churches, part of the family of the churches we're involved in, in London, who are now numbering their congregations in thousands. And so I'm praying, grow this church, Lord. 
And not just bigger numbers, but bigger people. Because we're not into entertainment Christianity. We're not all about positive thinking and add on a few Christian verses. We're not about its wealth, success, and tips for a happy life. We want people to grow in Christ and be bigger people. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you a story so I often do about Martin Lloyd-Jones. I realize now, at the age I am, when I say that I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach at Westminster Chapel, it must have been <laughs> like old people used to say once I heard Spurgeon preach when <laughs> I was a young person. So most of you never heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach. He was the greatest uh, preacher of the 20th century, and I heard him as a young man preaching Westminster Chapel, and uh, he was a mighty, mighty preacher. He was a somewhat austere figure in the pulpit. He looked kind of Victorian somehow, uh, and you didn't feel that you'd pass a joke with Martin Lloyd-Jones. But uh, I once heard him say this, and if you can think of the kind of person he might have been, this was just astounding. In Westminster Chapel, some of you will have been there, it's a huge church building, one of the biggest church buildings in the country. And uh, it's got a huge ground floor, and it has a huge wraparound gallery, which would take masses of numbers of people, but it also has a second gallery above that, so it's huge. And even in Martin Lloyd-Jones' time, they never filled the top gallery. And so the ground floor was packed, the, the, the first gallery was packed, but the top gallery was usually empty. And so it's a vast congregation, but still there was this top gallery empty. And Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached, and I heard him say this. Uh, he said, people say to me, he said, why can we not fill that top gallery? And he said, I'll tell you how we could fill it. He said, we could announce that next Sunday I will preach in my bathing costume. <laughs> now, personally, I think he overrated himself at that point, but I, I, you get the point that you put on some entertainment. And all right, you can bring a crowd. All right. But we're wanting to build a people who are our church of disciples, big people. Not just more people, but big people. Grow your church, Lord. Well, my friends, I've, I've, you know, a lot of you know that because it's been mentioned recently, I've been 50 years in ministry and I've seen some good things happen and I've seen churches grow and I've never been in a church that's done anything finally but grow somewhat. But I tell you, in the state of our nation at the present time, has been alluded to in our prayer time that we had this morning, and we know that our news, and it's just this past week, and it's just one week amongst all the weeks that go by, but don't we need a move of God? And we're not going to get a move of God just by being clever, just by doing it better, just by having better musicians or better coffee or better parking. What we need is a move of God. Yeah. And therefore, friends, we need to pray. And this autumn, let's be devoted to prayer when we've got that focus, that this church will grow. Fourthly, mission. I pray that this church will extend its reach, advance the kingdom, and touch the world outside. There's a kingdom dimension to the church that we are concerned for the poor, the oppressed, the brutalized, those without any power. I think of the work that Haley is doing, Oasis, as uh, she works with uh, people who are somewhat oppressed and disadvantaged. I think what Gemma is now doing as she goes into care homes and uh, ministers to them. And there's all sorts of ways in which as a local church we are and we can do more to reach out, to bring the kingdom, the rule of God, into our society. We need to have a concern about other churches. And praise God, we've planted another church. We've planted another congregation up at 502. And we've planted a church now in Glasgow. And we want to see that happen because churches need to be planted so that more people have the opportunity to hear about and become disciples of Jesus Christ. 
and we need to think about other nations so that with our advanced sphere of churches, within the New Frontiers family of churches of which we are part, we are reaching out to nation after nation to see the kingdom of God uh, extended and churches built and the world evangelized to the ends of the nations. Jesus said, the gospel will go to all people groups and then the end will come. John Piper's most famous statement is probably this, mission exists because worship doesn't. And what we're looking to see is more worshippers of Jesus through the mission of the church. And we need to consider our contribution, never forgetting the ends of the earth. This church will always pay a price for mission because it means we give away good people as we've given away the Kennedys, for example, to Glasgow. But let's pray for the mission of this church that there will be more worshippers of Jesus. And then, lastly, I pray for presence. And perhaps I do this more than anything I pray for, that as a church we may encounter the presence of God. Because finally, I believe, everything springs from that. A year or two back, I kind of got caught by this phrase, moments of transcendence. And a moment of transcendence is when you become aware of a different dimension. You realize that there's kind of something beyond what you normally experience. There's a different dimension somehow. Many non-Christians have moments of transcendence. I love watching Brian Cox's documentaries on the universe in various ways that he presents it. And uh, over the years, uh, I've heard Brian Cox and know him enough, I've heard him enough to know that he's an utterly committed atheist. He has no belief in God at all. But I listen to Brian Cox sometimes as he's presenting one of these wonderful programs on the universe and on creation, and he'll look at something or refer to something in the universe, and he'll say, isn't it wonderful? And you know He's having a moment of transcendence. He's touching something that he knows is somehow in a different dimension. Our moments of transcendence come with the presence of God. And it happens sometimes in worship. I think of a worship gathering we had a few months ago up at 5.02, and we were singing, It is well with my soul. And suddenly we just I could tell the whole congregation knew God was there. It was just a sense of the presence of God. I mentioned it with regard to preaching when I spoke two weeks ago, that what we're doing in preaching is not primarily imparting information, but helping people to encounter the presence of God through the Word of God. Not simply giving out information so that we can discuss what we've heard in small groups, but that we might encounter God. So that when people come in who are visitors, outsiders, non-believers, in the words of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24, what they'll say is God is really among you. I pray, and I want you to pray, for the presence of God. Let's be a church that's devoted to prayer. We're asking God for things. There's all sorts of people I'd like to ask for things. I wish I could go to the Queen and ask her to grant me my requests. But I'm not going to get into Buckingham Palace. I wish I could go to 10 Downing Street and talk to Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, and I could give him some pretty good advice on how he should sort out things for Brexit, I can tell you that. I'd like to ask him to do a few things. I wish I could go to the North Korea, but I can't. I wish I could go to the leader of North Korea 
and ask him, please give up your nuclear weapons. I wish I could go to President Putin and say, please, I ask you, stop supporting that tyrant in Syria. But I can't get there. I wish I could go to the White House and speak to President Trump and say, please, will you get rid of all these guns in America so that children in America can live in safety? And I can go to none of them, but I tell you this, I can go to God with confidence and ask, let's be a church devoted to prayer. Let's stand together, can we please? Worship uh, band coming up, please. And Father, I ask that we may be at Acts 2.42 church. Lord, I pray that we might be a devoted church, devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to communion, breaking of bread, as we heard last week, and as we take bread and wine in just a few moments, Lord. Let's do that with devoted hearts. I pray, Lord, that we be devoted to prayer. I pray especially, Lord, this autumn, as we give particular attention in small groups to prayer, may there be an anointing that comes upon us corporately that will stir us to pray. Do something in us as a church about prayer, Lord, so that we might be devoted to that and see you move and work. And Lord, pray that as Dan speaks next week on being devoted to fellowship, Lord, you'll lift our eyes to see the possibilities there of what it means to be the family of God. Let Gateway Church be a devoted church, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.